So this evening, uh, I'd like to speak about knowing and unknowing the body. And I'd like to invite you, as you listen to this talk, to practice keeping a good proportion of your attention in the felt sense of your body. Because it's easy, isn't it, when we listen to a talk, sometimes to get a bit disconnected from our own embodied experience. So, so why don't you make that a practice during this talk? Just staying connected with your own, the sense of the body as you sit here and listen. Because as, as we've been exploring today, uh, this sensed awareness of the body really is fundamental in all mindfulness practice. You know, as, as we've heard, the Buddha described it as the, the first way of establishing mindfulness and the foundation for all the other ways of establishing mindfulness. And he was pretty direct about it. He said, you know, the person who has no mindfulness of the body has no mindfulness at all. Or we could perhaps think about that in, as, you know, in the moments when we have no mindfulness of the body, we have no mindfulness at all. So it really is the ground of our practice. And, and he said, you know, in this fathom-long body are found all the teachings. Are found dukkha, the cause of dukkha, and the ending of dukkha. You know, and it's quite something to take that on, isn't it? You know, the whole dharma is sitting here in your seat, you know? <laughs> you know, really, it's, you, you sense it. It's something to take that on. Christina sometimes describes the body as the classroom of our awakening, you know, where we can learn all that we need to learn in order to awaken. You know, and, and yeah, I'd invite you really just to sort of have that sense as you're sitting here in this experience that we call the body. Wow, it's all here. I didn't have to do anything. It's all here, you know. And, you know, it really, in a sense, highlights how the, the, the fundamental task and challenge for those of us who are seeking to bring a mindfulness-based approach to our work with, with other people is really you know, about helping them to cultivate an increasingly sustained and skillful embodied awareness. And it's interesting, isn't it, how the science is really sort of supporting this, the neuroscience around mindfulness, if, if, you know, if one chooses that lens, showing how it's giving attention to the body that is the portal to a whole different mode of mind, a whole different set of networks in the brain. That take us out of the sort of driven doing mode, which characterizes so much of our ordinary lives, as well as the, the states of sort of clinical anxiety or depression, into a more mindful being embodied mode. And, and the creators of, of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy describe this sort of shift as the, the core skill 
that they're trying to teach in mindfulness-based programs is, is learning how to change the mode of mind through giving a certain quality of attention to the body. And the psychology of, of contemporary mindfulness and, and the Buddha's teachings are unanimous that this embodied attention is protective for the mind. And John spoke a little about this last night. You know, it's a protective practice that we're doing when we're devoting attention to the body. And, and the Buddha describes this quite sort of graphically in a certain way. He, you know, he, he describes this protective uh, this protection as, as a protection from Mara, which is the sort of personification of, of delusion and, and ignorance uh, in the Buddhist teachings. Or, and we could think of it really in contemporary terms or psychological terms as, as you know, the personification also of rumination, which is so much the activity of our states of mental distress, isn't it? You know, it is the activity of depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder ptsd is you know the whole range of psychological disorders have rumination right at their core and and the the buddha's images he has these these images he says you know when when we're not mindful of the body it's like trying to light dry wood or it's like trying to fill an empty jug with water. It's easy to do. It's easy for Mara to get in when we're not mindful of the body. But when we're mindful of the body, it's like trying to light damp wood or like trying to put water into a jug that's already full. You know, Mara can't find his way in. You know, And you might just play with that right now and just have that sense of, feeling the body as like a jug full of water, you know, a jug full of awareness. <laughs> and just notice actually the sort of the thinking mind that, that may make us more vulnerable to rumination just has less of a purchase on us when we're really inhabiting the body. And so, you know, this is our practice on retreat, is really cultivating a, a more continuous embodied awareness. And in, um, you know, we, we've spoken a bit about the Satipatthana Sutta, which really is, um, it's really the curriculum for this kind of retreat, just like it's the, the curriculum that lies behind, uh, you know, the mindfulness-based applications and interventions that are becoming so popular today. And, and you can find uh, in the section on the body really very uh, direct um, descriptions of how to apply this during our day. So the Buddha describes bringing this mindfulness to all four postures. So he says, when walking, the meditator knows I'm walking. When standing, she knows I'm standing. When sitting, he knows I'm sitting. When lying down, she knows I am lying down. Or she knows accordingly however her body is disposed. And we can see how this lies behind you know, the, the inclusion of yoga or body scan meditations lying down in, in mindfulness-based applications. But also just this sense of the basic knowing of the posture that we're in.
feeling how that's not just a sort of cognitive, factual knowing, it's a sort of experiential knowing. Like one of the, the teachers, Munindraji, who, who taught many of the leading Dharma teachers in, in, in the West, in the, he said, sit and know that you're sitting and the whole Dharma will be revealed. You know? And so even just right now, again, that sense of sitting and sort of knowing that you're sitting <laughs> and sort of knowing that you know that you're sitting. <laughs> Can you feel that? You know, just that real honoring of the posture. And of course, you know, that applies to all the postures, you know, standing and knowing that you're standing. Standing in the lunch queue, you know, knowing that you're standing. Lying down, you know, as you lie, maybe resting after lunch or lie at night. Just that sense of knowing the posture, really feeling how that gathers a certain mindful collectedness and a certain composure with it really helps to, to uh, also to, to strengthen a sense of continuity. You know, sometimes it can be really helpful to sort of tag changes of posture on retreat. Like we say at the end of the sittings, you know, before you get up to walk, it's almost just say, okay, there's, you can feel the intention rising to stand or you're standing at the, the end of your walking path, you feel the intention arise a few times to start walking and just aware of, of that sense of the intention coming up, feel it, feel it, oh, and then choose when you act on it. So just to, to become aware of the, the moments where we change posture and the intentions to change posture can really help to build the, con- the sense of continuous mindfulness, more sustained mindfulness. And can also sensitize us to when we're changing posture out of a sort of reaction, you know, with a hindrance that's, you know, wanting to get us away from something, for instance, or wanting to pursue something. So really invite you to, as you know, we sit and walk and stand and lie down here, just to be really bringing that sort of awareness to your posture moment by moment. And if of course, this then extends into activities and the next passage in the Satipatthana Sutta invites this attentiveness, this sense of knowing into all the activities of our day. So he says, again, meditators, when going forward and returning, she acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, he acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending her limbs, she acts clearly knowing. When wearing his robes, his clothes, and his outer robe and bowl, he acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, she acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, he acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, doing the vacuuming, doing the sweeping, chopping the vegetables, washing, you know, whatever it is, acting, clearly knowing. So 
So we can see how, you know, every moment on retreat is an opportunity to practice this, this clear knowing. Which has different levels, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, on one level, it's what John Kabat-Zinn describes as doing something and knowing that you're doing it. You know. So I'm vacuuming and, and somehow knowing that I'm doing it. You know. But also, you know, in the text, there's this sense that the knowing uh, also has a sense of the suitability or the, the sort of ethical sense of it you know is is this does this feel an appropriate thing to be doing <laughs> you know that that sense of uh, almost what's the motivation for doing this really getting curious about that you know and seeing how that's you know part of the the uh, pathway into a more wisdom oriented knowing of what we're doing moment by moment so again, you know, it's easy to come into a retreat and see these times of, you know, sitting and walking formal practice and to think, well, the rest is just sort of off duty. And it's not like, you know, it's not a sort of sentence, like you've got to be vigilant all the time, you know. Uh, but it's more like just can I bring this uh, sense of knowing, this sense of interest to all the activities of, of the day? while on retreat, and really to notice where are the times that I sort of go unconscious. You know, like what happens if I, when I go into my room and close the door? It's easy for sort of habits to kick in. It's, oh, thank goodness, you know, off duty, you know, sort of feeling. <laughs> uh, or when we go into the bathroom, you know. Just to see, not as I say, not with some sort of should, but just out of interest, out of a sense of sort of playful curiosity. What is it if I bring this sense of knowing, this sense of interest, this sense of really being present to every moment of the day? I appreciate Joseph Goldstein's encouragement when on retreat, to, to tag the moments when we're reaching for things, like reaching for a door handle or a teacup or a spoon to serve ourselves. Just, you know, those are helpful moments just to be aware of, to bring a sort of clear knowing, because there's sometimes moments where we can go a bit autopilot, aren't they? You know? And I always try to practice when when walking on stairs. Have you, does it, maybe other people do that as well? Just stairs as a time just to sort of gather the attention in a certain way, you know, and have that sense of, oh, clearly knowing this, or at least practicing clearly knowing this. And we can see, can't we, on retreat, how really a mindful life is, is, is one with many pauses in. <laughs> you know, pauses when we breathe and, and set and, and reset our intentions for the activities in which we're engaged. You know. So I really invite you over these days to, to practice. Uh, Tara Brach calls them sacred pauses, doesn't she? You know, where we just pause and gather, collect, and really have a sense of knowing how this moment is. 
And we can see, can't we, how this this mindfulness of the body is 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 it's like a craft, isn't it? The Buddha the Buddha frequently compares practice to being like crafts uh, and skills. And, it, and if we think, you know, what does it take to learn a craft? Well, it takes practice and it takes a lot of patience, doesn't it? And it takes experimenting, trying things out, seeing what works. And it takes persistence, the willingness just to, to keep at it. You know, even when... You know, we feel, you know, we get a bit discouraged. But just that sense of, okay, there's a basic sense, I would love to learn this craft more and more. You know? And so being willing to try it out when the mind feels sleepy, or when it feels restless, or when it feels irritated, or when it feels bored, or when it feels judgmental. What helps to, to nudge the mind-heart towards a greater wakefulness, towards a greater sense of balance, towards a greater sense of kindness and compassion. You know, and I think this is particularly helpful to remember on the early days of a retreat, isn't it? When often we can feel like, you know, done two days, how many more have we got to go? You know, <laughs> it's like, just to have that sense of, oh, well, you know, Let's just be patient with this and just have a sense of we're gradually practicing learning this craft, learning this uh, compassionate craft. And, and part of that learning is about, well, how can, we hold, how can we hold the body in a way that steadies the mind, steadies the heart, and, and eases a sense of, discomfort or suffering or difficulty. Maybe even that brings a sense of joy or nourishment to our experience. And it, it is really, it's, it's really important, I think, to be discerning. When we say give attention to the body, so often what we can end up doing is giving attention to the discomfort in the body, you know, because we're sort of evolutionarily if there is such a word, uh, you know, hardwired. The attention is sort of hardwired to go to what's difficult or painful. You know, we see how our attention is sort of, uh, our, our minds evolved for survival rather than for happiness. And so they sort of tend to go to what's wrong, you know. And actually to learn, well, where and how does it feel helpful or appropriate to place attention in the body at this time? This is, this is part of this clearly knowing quality. And, and uh, I always think of, of uh, the legend of, of Gautama, the, the, the man who became the Buddha on the night of his awakening. When, you know, the, so the story goes, uh, Mara, who have mentioned already, sensed that, that this awakening, this great awakening was about to happen. And so he threw all his armies, he threw every last thing he had at Gautama, trying to uh, prevent him from awakening. So, you know, he had, you know, intense desire and fear and self-doubt, you know. Isn't it interesting that the last thing that that Mara threw at him with self-doubt because he thought this is the thing that's really going to do it. And don't we find that so easily, you know? 
And, and so the story goes, what, what Gautama did was he touched the earth. In fact, you know, here he is doing it, this, this hand gesture of touching the earth. And I've, I always find that such a sort of resonant and sort of inspiring gesture, a gesture of sort of sanity, of touching the earth, of really valuing the earth element. Really, you know, so the story goes, it gave the sense of, of confidence, sense of worthiness to awaken. And, and so helpful, isn't it, in our practice, really just to honor and to value the contact with ground. I find as a, as a mindfulness teacher, it's probably the, 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 the sort of encouragement or suggestion that I make the most. It's just, can you feel your feet on the floor? <laughs> you know? Can you feel the body on the chair or the cushion? You know, th- there's a saying in the Tao Te Ching, gravity is the root of all grace. I love that. I find it quite moving, actually, just hearing that. Gravity is the root of all grace. And, and seeing that, you know, in some ways, this practice is about helping us back into gravity, which is a very countercultural direction of travel, isn't it? Because there's so much in our culture that is about going up, you know, in the sort of busy, what Mark Williams uh, calls uh, the franticity of modern culture, you know, with its sort of anxiety and its uptightness. And, uh, you know, even our education, which seems to send us up. John and I do some of our teaching at Oxford University where there's a joke that that the only reason why some of the professors have bodies is to carry their heads to meetings, you know. (laughs) And, you know, it's rather sobering just how much that sort of pretty similar view underlies so much of our education system, doesn't it? It sends us up into our heads, you know. And, And we can see also just how the body is is so sensitive, isn't it? It's so, as well as just the sort of crazy busyness of our lives which sends us up into our heads, just, just how discomfort and, and the sort of sensitivity of the body, the vulnerability to trauma, you know, so easily sort of disconnects us from the body, takes us out of gravity, out of body as body. You know, as, as Hamlet said, you know, the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, you know. Just how many of the natural shocks of our day-to-day cause us just slightly to retreat from our sense of embodiment, you know. The Buddha spoke about the body of fear. And it's so easy in our, in our culture, in our times, to to inhabit the body of fear, isn't it? You know, our individual and our collective traumas and stresses and pressures and franticity. And in the face of that, you know, really learning how to touch the earth 
you know, really learning how to give the body to gravity. Really learning how to, to rest on our seat, on our feet, on this earth. And to feel that sense of resourcing, that sense of uh, support that comes from doing that. It does feel as if a lot of practice is about finding the balance between resourcing and edge, you know. So easily we go to the edge of difficulty and think, you know, that's what, where we're meant to be somehow, you know. And actually, a lot of the Buddha's teaching is about finding a sense of resource, really finding a way of cultivating capacity and resource so that we can then be with the edge. And one of the... Uh, one of the aspects of this in Buddhist meditation practice is the different b- difference between samatha practice, which is uh, samatha and vipassana practice. So samatha practice, the, which is about calming and steadying and gathering and collecting and nourishing and healing and soothing and smoothing the energy body. And just how crucial that is for building a sense of capacity and resource then to be able to turn towards and inquire into what's difficult, what's uh, a source of dukkha, source of binding, you know. And that distinction between samatha and vipassana isn't, isn't you know, clearly made in the mindfulness-based applications for all sorts of good reasons. But it's, it is very helpful, I think, in our own practice to be aware of those different dynamics because they're both present. You know, the difference between the body scan in session one and the body scan in session eight, you know, often has a lot to do with the difference between samatha and vipassana, I think. And, and just to be aware of uh, these, the, the possibility of using... Uh, the body as a source of collectedness and nourishment and even of pleasure. You know, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the first instruction on the body is, as Christina said this morning, is about mindfulness of breathing. And there are two phrases that I love within it. Breathing in, sensitive to the entire body. Breathing out, sensitive to the entire body. Breathing in, calming the bodily formation, breathing out, calming the bodily formation. And in, in one of the suttas, which is called the Kaya Gata Sati Sutta, which means, John uh, tells me, uh, it's the sutta on becoming mindful of the body. The Buddha really recommends and describes a sequence of whole body practices for calming and gathering and collecting the awareness in the body, pervading the body with the sense of knowing. Can you, can you feel that right now? Just like expanding the lens of the awareness really to include the whole body as it sits here and breathes. And what's interesting is in these images in this sutta, uh, many of them are about soaking and saturating. And 
to use the phrase from the sutta, drenching and filling and pervading the body with awareness, with a sense of breath, with the sense of subtle sense of pleasure. And, you know, you might really just, just practice that, what it's like to have a sense in this moment of just soaking the body in a kindly awareness, a sort of cellular awareness. You know, and just, just noticing that can be a very pleasurable and calming practice to, to cultivate. You know. Maybe it's just part of the body, feeling of soaking the lower half of the body. The sense of, of mindfulness as an appreciative awareness, an appreciative awareness that can coexist with discomfort. It's one of the things one can notice about this, that actually one can be enjoying the breathing, enjoying the sense of the body, enjoying the groundedness of the body, even while other parts of the body are uncomfortable. You know? So this peaceful coexistence that Christina spoke about this morning, such a helpful phrase. You know? So really getting that sense that, that the body can be a source of nourishment can be a source of steadying can be a source of a sort of appreciative pleasurable gatheredness for the attention and that the breath can be a real means for cultivating that really invite you you know at times during this retreat to just practice what happens just if you just practice enjoying your breathing you know through the entire body And another crucial aspect of this craft, of course, is, is learning how to hold and to listen to the body with kindness and with compassion. And, and we reflected on this a bit this afternoon. But really to recognize that this knowing of the body that is mindfulness is not a cold stare. You know? it's, it's a warmth. It's a tenderness. The Buddha compares it to how a mother cares for a child, you know. So as you sit here now, just having that sense of what is it just to, to practice as best we can, just cradling the body in a kindly awareness. Holding it with a tenderness, just as best we can in this moment. Really noticing the difference between attention and mindfulness. You know, attention can be a cold stare. Mindfulness, as we heard this afternoon, always has this sense of warmth, this sense of interest, this sense of caring. And of course, part of the practice and the craft of mindfulness of the body is learning to relate with this caring, compassionate attention to discomfort and to pain in the body. You know, what is it to bring a compassionate listening to discomfort rather than resistance and judgment and a sense of got to get rid of this or, or the identification with the stories, which we so easily get to, don't we, with pain. We get so attached to the stories so easily, so identified with that. What is it to practice, you know, as best we can, softening resistance and infusing areas of the body that are uncomfortable with a gentle sense of breath, 
holding them, if you like, in, in, a, in a larger, compassionate attention. I appreciate the, the uh, guidance from one of the teachers who I, I've learned a lot from who, who gives this sense of when there's an area of the body that feels uncomfortable, you can almost imagine that around it there are sort of soft, warm waves of metta just lapping at it, you know? So even if there's, you know, an area of the shoulder that feels just a real knot of discomfort, what is it to surround it with a kindly lapping, soft sea waves of tenderness and caring? Changing the the climate of heart and mind in which we hold discomfort. Really noticing what a difference that makes. And of course, an aspect of this is what is sometimes called the wisdom of imperfection, isn't it? You know, which is really, you know, part of which is about really allowing the body to be as it is. You know, compared with all our ideas, which can be so persistent about how we think it should be different from how it is generally less this and more that, you know? And just to honor the wisdom of imperfection and to sense how, you know, in many ways, the body is the primary relationship for learning a more unconditional friendliness and compassion. So this, this mindfulness of, of the body is, is a craft which invites exploration and experiment and discernment in how to hold the body, how, how and where to place attention within the body. And that invites a really, a deep kindness and tender compassion as we go through uh, the moments of our day. However, mindfulness of the body isn't simply a practice of knowing the body, but it's also a practice of unknowing, of unlearning and dismantling at progressively deeper and, if you like, more radical levels some of the habitual and familiar ways in which we perceive and know the body and indeed all of our conventional experience. Because central to the Buddha's teachings is the insight that the ways in which we habitually know and perceive things are distorted by unconscious beliefs and concepts and assumptions which sort of structure and shape our experience in ways that make dukkha inevitable. And it's challenging some of these uh, habitual ways of knowing that really is the, the deeper work of liberation. And in one of the discourses, the Buddha distinguishes between establishing awareness of the four satipatthanas, and I I realize that we haven't actually named them, I think, yet on this retreat. So body, feeling tones, 
mind and mental states and mental contents. And and we're going to go through those over these next few days. And the Buddha distinguishes between just being aware of them and developing what he calls a more full and complete mindfulness of them, which involves this deeper work of, if you like, liberating the mind from some of its unconscious habitual ways of perceiving. And I think that distinction has really significant implications for those of us who are teaching mindfulness or working with mindfulness with our clients. Because mindfulness is so often presented as being simply about bringing awareness or knowing to this moment's experience of body and mind. You know, being with how things are right now in the body. It's a phrase we hear, isn't it? You know? And, of, and, you know, it's a very useful and calming skill to develop, to be able to be with things as they are right now, you know. Uh, and to, to cultivate that will certainly bring some considerable degree of freeing from dukkha. However, we can also see that, that there's, there's a sort of assumption of, in, in some, some of the ways in which mindfulness is sort of, talked about in in some of the popular discussion of it, that somehow if I get rid of my self-judgment, then I'll have this objective view of reality where I'll know things as they are, you know. And that's not the Buddha's teachings, you know. The Buddha is pointing towards a much more fundamental and radical level of freedom that's on offer in the practice of this path. And it's really helpful, I think, to be you know, clear about that and, and to investigate that and to begin to know that as a possibility in our own experience. And, and I'm conscious I'm you know, saying this and, and many of you will really know exactly what, where this is going. Because you know? uh, as, as well as the practice of basic knowing of experience, the Buddha recommended what he called anupasana, or contemplation, practicing ways of looking at experience that challenge and uproot habitual, unconscious assumptions about how things are and highlight certain characteristics of, ex- of existence in doing so. And he recommends various of these, but in particular three, practicing the contemplation of impermanence, both at the obvious levels and at the most subtle of levels, as a way of sort of challenging and undermining the tendency to see things, and especially to see, you know, bodies and minds and mental experiences as solid and fixed and permanent. And during the... um, Satipatthana Sutta, there's a refrain that, that occurs 13 times during the Sutta. You know, he repeats it 13 times. Uh, and central to it is this statement. The meditator abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or she abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, 
or he abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. So, so six of the 13 times are applied to the body. That statement occurs. You know. So what is it, you know, in this moment, again, just to become aware of the flickering arisings and passings away in the texture of what we call the body. To notice how experience is arising and passing away at every moment. You know, wherever you place attention in the body, the more closely you look, the more things almost start to disappear as soon as you've started to notice them sometimes. And so really to inflect the way of looking at the body sometimes to noticing impermanence. And the second of the contemplations is the contemplation of unsatisfactoriness, the, the, the inability of any object or sense experience to bring lasting satisfaction. If you like, the unreliability of things or sense experiences as sources of lasting happiness. Sort of the encouragement to stop looking for them to give what they can't in a way that help, helps to sort of quieten the push and the pull of p- aversion and desire. And the third of these contemplations is the contemplation of what he called anatta or not-self. The, the selfless, non-personal nature of all phenomena, including the body. And this is inviting a way of looking that practices seeing all experiences as not me, not mine, not who I am. Body as body, as Christina spoke about this morning. And, you know, none of these, these three sort of, if you like, radical contemplations is an end in itself. They're all intended as skillful means to facilitate the releasing of clinging and craving and the sort of compulsive habitual identification that co-arises with clinging and craving. And this is the, the progressive unknowing that the, the Buddha invites us to engage in. And sustaining these, these contemplations takes a certain subtle effort because it goes so much against the grain, against the stream, as the Buddha puts it, of our habitual ways of knowing our experience. And you can see this in the verbs, the change of verbs as you go through the body section of the Satipatthana Sutta. He goes from the the meditator knows to the meditator trains to the meditator reviews So the meditator applies this perception to bodily experience. Do you hear that? There's a sense of sort of, actually, it's taking a certain, because the stream is towards seeing things in terms of permanence and their ability to satisfy us and the sense that that this body is me and mine, you know, that's, that's the stream of our habits. It takes a certain subtle, compassionate work to swim against that current. 
and and although you know these insights into these these what are called the three characteristics may arise naturally in the in the course of our practice the buddha's recommending at times deliberately cultivating them as ways of looking at our experience looking at this moment's experience of the body through the lens of impermanence looking at this moment's experience of the body through the lens of this can't satisfy can I just let it be? It can't satisfy. Looking through this moment's experience of the body, through the lens of this is not me, not mine, not who I am. And these, these ways of looking really shape the remaining three practices that the Buddha recommends in the Satipatthana Sutta. So there are six body practices in this sutta. Um, there's the breathing, there's postures, the four postures, there's the different activities of the day. And then what about this? Uh, How how does this one land with you, if I can find it? Um, Again, meditators. Sorry, again, meditators. The, The meditator reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the tops of the hair, enclosed by skin, as full of many kinds of impurity. Thus... In this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, mesentery, whatever that is, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, uh, uh, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, Spittle, oil of the joints, and urine. You know, that's a different sort of body scan, isn't it? You know, and and what's more, the Buddha invites us to to practice this, like all the contemplations, both internally and externally, on other people. You know, and just notice how it affects you. Just if you have the sense of the body like that. And just notice how it affects the body, just to become aware of these different ingredients. It's interesting how the Buddha's simile for this is he compares it to, to having uh, a, a bag that's em- that has a hole at both ends and has lots of different sorts of grain and rice and beans and pulses in And there's a coolness about that, isn't there? Can, can, do you feel that? It's a sort of, there's a dispassion with that image of these different grains and rices and, you know. And, and it's not that he's offering this as somehow the ultimate truth about the body, but more like this is a skillful means for encouraging a certain letting go, a letting go of the craving a letting go of identification and clinging. You know, and, and in the body scan, there's often that encouragement to talk about the feet, the knees, rather than my, my feet, my knees, my arms. You know, to have that sense of a cooled relationship uh, and the potential of this sort of, uh, the certain versatility of ways of looking at the body. Can, as, can we know it with those eyes of coolness as well as 
at other times the appreciation of the beauty of the body. And the next of the uh, contemplations is of the elements. So the Buddha invites to know the earth element, the fire element, the water element, the air element of the body. To begin to see the body as an interplay of elements. You know, and again, you might just try that right now, even just for a moment. The heat, the cohesiveness or fluidity, the temperature. the density, the air. Noticing how it takes us out of a sort of conceptual way of knowing the body into a more sort of energetic way of knowing the body. We have a sense of the body and its elements. We also have a sense of how continuous the the body is with the, the rest of nature. sort of giving the body back to nature. One meditation teacher says, you know, this is the misappropriation, calling the body me and mine is the misappropriation of public property, you know? (laughs) Can we just let the body be an interplay of elements that we don't have to take so personally? And that's also present in the final of the meditations, which is the contemplation of the body in relation to a corpse in nine different stages of decay. You know. And the, the reflection is the meditator applies this perception to his or her own body. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like this. It is not exempt from this fate. And again, just to notice the effect of that, that sense of the impermanence, the inevitability of the death of this and other bodies, and how it invites a deep releasing of clinging and identification with a body that is so changing and transient. You know, this is not a denial of, of poignancy or or the appropriateness of sadness and, and lo- you know, a sense of loss, but just the recognition that the fear of death diminishes to the extent that we are less identified with the body and that this can help to cultivate uh, a maturity that can face our own death and the death of those we love with growing equanimity and compassion. So we see how each of these six contemplations offers a way of looking that deeply challenges our usual ways of perceiving and knowing the body. You know, to think, thinking of it as permanent, as a potential source of pleasure and satisfaction, and above all as me and mine. How these practices invite what what one teacher describes as a holy disinterest, H-O-L-Y, disinterest or dispassion towards the body. Where we can really let it be as it is. We can practice really honoring body as body. 
do you, do you feel that? That sense of potential of just letting body be body. Ramana Maharshi said, trying to awaken whilst identifying with the body is like trying to cross a river on the back of a crocodile. You know? And the, the, the Buddha's teachings and the psychology of the contemporary mindfulness-based applications are in complete agreement that liberation comes through a, the cultivation of non-reactivity, non-clinging, non-identification with experience. This is liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha said, meditators, in clinging, one is bound by Mara, by depression, by anxiety, by all the ways we bind ourselves. By non-clinging, one is free. And we can see that in you know, the, the Dharma offers a model where, where different factors co-arise and co-cease together. So we can see how the more reactivity and clinging there is, the more identification there will be, the more selfing there will be, the more sort of substantial and solid and compounded and thick and contracted experience seems and the more dukkha there is. So all of those build together and the opposite is also true that the less reactivity and clinging there is, the less identification, seeing things as me and mine there will be, the less selfing will be taking place, the more there will be a releasing and unbinding and experience feels less substantial and there is less dukkha. And we know this in our own experience, don't we? In, in our most difficult moments where there's a lot of aversion, as we were saying this afternoon, things feel so solid. You know, there's a solid sense of me and a solid sense of other, you know? In the moments where there's a kindness, where there's a greater sense of ease, where there is a sense of releasing, experience loosens up, thins out, becomes more fluid or fluent, less substantial. And as we progressively cultivate the conditions of heart, body and mind that are conducive to the releasing of clinging, and as we practice recognizing and then releasing the stories and opinions and mental images that we've carried about our bodies, as well as the deeper assumptions that we may have held about what the body is, we may begin to discover something mysterious, that the body is not some solid, fixed, objective thing. It doesn't somehow exist independently of how we look at it, of the way of looking. The Buddha described in the, the discourses perception as being like a mirage. 
and consciousness or the faculty of knowing as being like a conjurer's tricks. And we may begin to discover as, as we practice this letting go, this releasing of clinging, this letting body just be body, this letting th- the body just be as it is, that this body, which at the relative level is grounding, at a more ultimate level, can feel groundless in a way that can feel profoundly liberating. And this is what one meditator said about this. She said, in sitting quietly and listening, without explanations or ideas, I discovered that there is no body. If there's just listening and experiencing, what is the body? Where is it? Where does it begin and end? Meditation reveals that the body is a painting that appears and disappears in imagination. It seems solid when we think about it, or if we look in a mirror and think, or look at another person and think. But in sitting quietly, we can actually experience the body as permeable, borderless, empty space. And we can experience how nothing is separate from this space. Now, of course, just to wrap up, I'm not suggesting that we integrate corpse meditations into MBSR. But if our practice and teaching of mindfulness are truly going to be progressively liberating, we really, it's so helpful to practice aligning our understanding more and more deeply with the insights to which these Satipatthana practices point. You know, this, this fathom-long body, as the Buddha said, presents and offers a classroom and a curriculum for all of our practice of awakening. This body which connects us inseparably with all of life and death. And so provides a basis for an authentic and mature compassion. And as we practice both knowing and unknowing the body, we may discover that we truly don't need to be imprisoned in the stories and beliefs and self-judgments or the deeper views underlying them that trap and limit us and keep us caught in suffering. And by this means, you know, mindfulness of the body can become not only a source of deeper understanding and compassion, but a doorway into mystery and into wonder. 
And I'd like to, to end with a quotation from Ajahn Mun, who was one of the great Thai forest masters in the first half of the 20th century. And he said this, In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and clearly by the heart, the wonders of the world will be revealed. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So let's just sit for a few moments together. So thank you for your attention. We have some time for walking, taking your body for a walk, uh, taking the body for a walk, maybe. <laughs> uh, and we'll come back for our final sitting of the day in about half an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.